How can it be the one who died has borne our sin through sacrifice to conquer every sting of death? Sing, sing hallelujah. For joy awakes as dawning light when Christ disciples lift their eyes alive he stands their friend and king Christ Christ is arisen Christ is risen he's risen indeed oh sing hallelujah join the chorus sing with the redeemed Christ is risen he's risen once had been, they saw him and their hearts believed. But blessed are those who have not seen, yet sing hallelujah. Once bound by fear, now bold in faith, they preached the truth and power of grace. And St. James, and uh, welcome to everybody who's watching on the live stream today, too. If you're watching on the live stream, you don't realize, uh, maybe you do, I don't know, that we have uh, new lights in the sanctuary now, which um, is my favorite, probably thing that's ever happened here. Far, 
more important to me than any of my relationships with you. Sad, sad to say. That's how much I hated those lights. I, now, I do, we, I do realize, we realize that there are some dark spots here, and that's being worked on. We're probably going to get some uh, more lighting in here to cover those. And I also realize, too, everybody says, well, now you can, now the orange carpet looks even worse. And you can see the, the mauve kneelers up here, which are just horrible. And yes, that's, gonna, uh, that's, that's uh, the next thing uh, in the plan. So we're going to get that fixed, too. But uh, it's good to see all of you. And let me run through some announcements real quick. Everything is back on schedule for this week, except for men's Bible study. Uh, won't be happening. We're still uh, we're going to take another week off or so on, t- on Tuesday morning. But youth group Tuesday night, women's Bible study, screw tape letter study, uh, Wednesday evening. Today, youth confirmation right after the 1015 uh, service. And then adult Bible study at, at uh, 12.30. Let me know if you want to be a part of that. That's really all the announcements I have for today. And so, uh, go ahead and stand with me, and let's pray, then we'll continue worshiping. God, uh, just like every Sunday morning, we pray that you would meet with us uh, this morning. Uh, we don't want this to be an echo chamber. We, we don't want this to be mere ritual. We want a relationship with you. We want you to show yourself to us through the power of your word. And we want to respond to you with a real genuine, Holy Spirit-fueled, heartfelt praise and worship. And this is a gift that only you can give. And so we're asking you for it this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God. Father, you are the Lord and you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve them all. You have called us to yourself and given us a covenant. You have become our God and made us your people, and yet we have turned away from you. We have rebelled against you. You have delivered us many times according to Your covenant mercies. You have warned us, and yet we have acted presumptuously. You have sent us prophets, and we have turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened our necks and would not obey Your law. You are the Lord and You alone. You are our God, great and mighty. You keep covenant and steadfast love. We deplore our sins before You, and before each other. They have only gotten us into trouble. They have only enslaved us. They have not given us the happiness they promised. Deliver us from our sin and the power and attraction of sin through the faithful suffering and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose intercession we plead and in whose name we pray. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the expiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Please stay standing for the first hymn.
Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. First reading this morning is from Acts. It's a description of uh, the earliest Jesus community. A lot of times we talk about Acts too. We, we uh, go over the... Um, that, that really sweet part at the end of Acts 2 after the Pentecost sermon. But this is another good description here from Acts 4. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so the epistle reads from 1 John, and can you give me, like, I'm going to reference this in the sermon this morning, and it's going to save me time in the sermon if I kind of set it up for you now. So in the first, uh, what is it, verse, three verses here, three or four verses, John is describing his memories of like physically interacting with Jesus. Like John remembers what he looked like, what he sounded like. John remembers like grabbing onto him. I don't know when that was, but maybe like in a fishing boat or sometime when they were out fishing once and like leaning over to grab onto Jesus as they were pulling nets in. John remembers all that. 
But now he says we have something that's just as powerful and just as special, and that is the forgiveness of sins and the forgiveness of sins that we offer each other. We have fellowship with one another. I'm going to come back to that in the sermon. That which was from the beginning, he means Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
the Holy Gospel according to St. John chapter 20. On the evening of that day, so it's a, uh, Easter Sunday, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Okay, so uh, Doubting Thomas, right? We, this is uh, every year in the lectionary, this is the Gospel reading for the Sunday after Easter. So uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that for those of you who've grown up in church, uh, this is a pretty familiar story to you. I'll start off by pointing out, if I can, two things about this story that are frequent bad interpretations, which actually are, are kind of dangerous. When, if, you, if you don't understand that they're misinterpretations, they can be kind of da- dangerous. And they're super common. Uh, one, so the first one is that Thomas is a doubter. I know we, we, we call him Doubting Thomas. He's actually not doubting. He's disbelieving. He says, I'll never believe. If I don't, if I don't get proof, I'll never believe. That, that's actually something quite different than doubting. Doubting is a normal part of any normal relationship. It's a normal part of Christianity. I'm not saying it's good, but it's totally normal to doubt. Everybody has doubts. There's not a single person who is so sanctified in their mind that they just completely get everything. There's a difference between that, though, in rejecting the gospel, all right? So if I, if I think the angel is upset with me, it's a doubt. I don't know. I don't know if she likes me right now or not. What I should do is I should go to her and say, hey, are we okay? And then let her say, no, we're not, and so then I can know what to fix, or say, yeah, you were mistaken. I take a doubt, and I take it to Angela. We do that in every relationship. If I think that one of you is upset with me, I'll do the same thing. I'll come to you and say, hey, are, are we cool? Is something, did, something, did I do something? Or I know I do this stupid stuff all the time. Did I do something or say something to offend you? And then figure it out. That's something different than saying, oh, I think that so-and-so is upset with me. I'm done. You know, I, I can't talk to them. I'm done with them. Or I don't think Angela likes me anymore, so I'm going to bail on this marriage. 
That's something completely different. The first is normal. It's a normal part of any relationship. The second is the way relationships get fractured and irretrievably broken. Here's what I'm saying. To to, to call Thomas a doubter actually minimizes what you and I go through in the normal course of our Christian life every day, thinking, I, I, I get paid to be a Christian, and I have doubts. There are times when I'm like, I don't, you know, what if this isn't true? Or like, that, that's one level. Another level is, what if God doesn't like me? Or what if God's punishing me for something? Everybody has doubts. And to say, you know, so, to, what, I, what I don't want to do is to make anybody who's experiencing doubts, which is everybody who can hear my voice right now, figure that that somehow puts you outside the kingdom. One of my most powerful experiences as a pastor, and I know when I, when I tell this, it doesn't seem like it, but like I always remember this, is a seventh grade catechism class talking to a group of students and having one girl like say, almost shocked, You're, do you mean that if I have doubts, like I can still be saved? Well, yeah. This is, that's normal. The synagogue ruler to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a really spot-on psychological self-evaluation. Jesus, I believe in Jesus, but there's parts of me that doubt, like God helped that part. That's something different than saying, unless he proves it to me, I'll never believe it. It's something completely different. What I want to do, so basically what I'm doing here is I'm encouraging you to doubt the right way. I'm not going to tell you not to doubt because I can't do that myself. And tons of you are better Christians than me, so I'm assuming that you doubt. I'm assuming that everybody in here doubts. But what do you do with the doubt? You take it to Jesus. You take it to God. You do the right things with it. You don't harbor inside of yourself. You don't stew on it. You don't let it turn into unbelief any more than you would let your doubts about how your wife feels about you turn into a divorce if you actually want a healthy relationship. You go to the person. That's the first thing. He's not doubting Thomas. He's disbelieving Thomas. So the second thing is this, is that, so that means that this is not a story about people who struggle with doubts. This is a story about how people move from unbelief to belief. I'll never believe in him, he says. Actually, that's the phrase he says, I'll I'll never believe. And then he moves to this radical confession. My Lord and my God, that is the most astounding confession in all of the New Testament, in all the Gospels, I should say, of who Jesus is. My Lord and my God. How does that happen? It happens through, well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. It happens through this like personal encounter he has with Jesus. We're gonna talk in a second about what that means for us. But one of the temptations that we have, here's the second misunderstanding, and I want you all to pay attention to this because this is pretty important. Sometimes we'll read verse 29 in here, and it will cause us to misunderstand exactly what faith is. So in verse 29, Jesus says uh, to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, here's a bad way to understand that verse. Okay, Thomas, you've believed because I've given you a reason. I've given you a proof. But other people who come after you, and poor slackers in St. James in the year 2021, they're going to get no reasons. They're just going to have to blindly leap out in faith with no sort of reasons at all. That's the way to understand. That's the way I probably have taught that myself too. Like Thomas had faith because Thomas saw Jesus. You don't get to see Jesus, and so your faith is even more powerful because it's a blind leap into the darkness. But that's actually not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here at all. In fact, actually, if you, um, so I got a lot to say here, and I'm not going to say hardly any of it now, although I was thinking as I was studying this week, what I want to do this summer at some point, and I I hesitate to like warn you about this because some of you are going to be like, that's boring. I'm I'm, I'm not coming to church that day. 
uh, I'd like to preach about what is biblical faith and how that relates to knowledge. Because there's this myth, and I, I, I'm not going to unpack this now, but just hold on, hold on to this thought, and then in the summer we'll get to it at some point, hopefully in the summer. There's this common, modern, post-enlightenment myth that knowledge is what you get from being rational, from your senses, from proof. And that has nothing to do with faith. Knowledge is what you have that has nothing to do with faith. Faith is what you get from believing something that you know is not so, to quote Mark Twain. From leaping out into the dark, to quote Soren Kierkegaard. Faith, is not having, faith has nothing to do with reason or proof. In fact, it goes against reason and proof. And can I just say that that's absolutely not true. Postmodern philosophers are coming more and more to understand that there is hardly any gap at all between knowledge and faith. That what you think you know most of the time is actually faith, and what you think you believe most of the time is actually knowledge. And it's hard to suss out the difference between the two. I believe that my mom loves me. I know that my mom loves me. It means basically the same thing. I actually can't prove that my mom loves me, but I believe it. There's lots of evidences for it, else I probably wouldn't believe it. But at the end of the day, it actually is a faith commitment. Any relationship is. You go home at night and you assume that your spouse is not going to murder you. That's actually a faith commitment. Augustine says it this way. Augustine says that every knowledge act that you commit, everything that you think that you know is actually faith seeking understanding. And you could be a pastor like, you know, I'm faith guy, right? No, actually, I need, I need material to work with. I need ancient texts. I need archaeology. I need a community of people. I need evidences upon which to build my faith. You might be a scientist in a lab coat. You know, this modern myth of like, they don't need faith at all. They're just pure objectivity, pure reason, pure, you know, uh, uh, experimenting. Actually, um, and I've quoted this book before. I'm not going to reference too much, too, too much of it now. Thomas Kuhn's fantastic, he's not a Christian. Thomas Kuhn's fantastic book, The Structure of Scientific, Scientific Revolutions, where he argues that every scientist back of what he or she does is a faith commitment to a hypothesis that they have supposed. You can't write a paper without doing this. You can't run an experiment on what's the best toothpaste without doing this. You have a faith commitment that you make, and then you do an experiments to test it out. We call this the hypothesis, right? It's just part of the scientific method. What is that? That's faith seeking understanding. What am I doing as a Christian pastor? Faith seeking understanding. What are you doing as a spouse or a parent or a child or a friend in any kind of relationship? You kind of commit to the relationship, and then you try to understand the person better based upon this trust that I'm, I'm, not, I'm getting into this, and you're not going to murder me. That's kind of a Worst case scenario, you're not going to talk bad about me behind my back. Faith seeking understanding. So whenever Jesus says this, he said, he, he's not saying, Thomas, you got evidences. Okay, that's fine for right now. Later on, them Christians at St. James Glen Carbon, they're going to get no evidences, and they're just going to blindly step out in there. No, God's actually giving us evidences too in this text. I want to show those to you. That's what I'm going to do for the rest of the time. There's three, and we can do this pretty quickly. You don't get to see Jesus in person, but he gives himself to you in powerful evidences, powerful reasons, just as powerful. Now let's do it like this. Look back at verse 29. And I'm gonna make this comment real quick. Have you believed because you have seen me? In the ESV, and actually in most English translations, there's a question mark at the end of that line. Have you believed because you've seen me? In Greek, there's no punctuation. Uh, in, in ancient Greek, in fact, in ancient Greek, there's no 
There's no capital letters. There's no spaces between the letters either. It's just like, it's like just straight letters. That question mark, in other words, is some editor somewhere deciding, I think that's a question. But actually, in a lot of commentaries I read this week, argued that that's actually not a question. You shouldn't read that as a question. Instead of reading it as, have you believed because you've seen me? You should read it, you've believed because you've seen me, as a statement. In other words, Thomas, you've believed because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, he's not saying, Thomas, you're worse than them. He's saying, Thomas, here's why you've believed. Other people are going to believe for different reasons. Now, what are those three reasons? What are those reasons? I'm going to give you three of them here from the text. The word, the spirit, and the scars. So first of all, the word. Check this out. I'm going to read verse 29 again. I know I've read it about 15 times already. Let me read it one more time. Thomas, you've believed because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, how do people come to believe? Thomas, you, because you've seen Jesus physically. What about us? How do we come? If you just stop there, it's like, well, there is no reason. You just have to do it. No, no, no. Here's a reason. Keep on reading. Verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What does he say? Thomas, you believe because you've seen Jesus. St. James Glenn Carbon and friends, you believe because of the Gospel of John, because of the written word. What does he mean? That, in the Bible, that is just as powerful an evidence for who Jesus is, is actually seeing him in person. Is actually seeing him in person. Look, seeing is surface. Seeing somebody is surface. Now, I know Thomas had more than seeing, right? He actually touched him, we, we presume, from what Jesus told him to do. He heard his voice. But seeing, like if you say, if I could just see Jesus, I would believe in him. Actually, seeing is surface. But hearing gets under the surface. Hearing gets under the surface. If I could, so if I didn't know you, let's say, let, let's say that I didn't know you, and I, I just, I saw you from a distance. And we, oh, this is kind of weird. We looked at each other. We made eye contact for a few seconds which is just, I totally wouldn't do that. I don't have the guts to do that. I would, I would turn away and act like I was cool. I didn't really see you. It was too awkward. But let's say that you and I made eye contact for four or five seconds. We'd never met before. Would I know you? I think you would say, I would hope you would say no. I would know maybe kind of what you look like, even though me being the idiot I am would probably forget and not recognize you the next time I saw you. However, what if I got a chance to talk to you for a few seconds? I would know way more about you than I did before you started talking. Why is that? That's because talking is the way we know each other. Because just by seeing you, I don't get inside of you. The seeing is just surface. I know what you look like. But by talking, you let me into what's going on in your brain and your emotions and the way you make decisions and that sort of thing. You start through your words, sending your words out into the air, into my ears, and I start to process this is who this person is. This is what they value. This is what they like. These are their hobbies. These are their habits, that sort of thing. I mean, there's a, reason why, there's a reason why sign language exists, right? Like people who can't hear, they don't walk up to each other and just assume, oh, this is fine. I get, I, we'll just, let's just look at each other. Now, even though they can't use verbal speech to communicate, they figure out a way with their hands, with their facial expressions to communicate because seeing is surface. Hearing is below the surface. And the Bible actually agrees with this. When the Bible talks about faith, it almost always talks in terms of hearing. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by, what do you think it says? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
We have faith in Jesus because we hear his words. We hear him speak to us. You don't see him, but you hear him speak to us. He says the same thing in John chapter 5. Jesus says, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He doesn't say when the dead will see me and they'll come to life. He says the dead will hear me, will hear my voice, and they will, they will come to life. In other words, they will have faith. Thomas, for Thomas, seeing is believing. And we talk about, we talk about that all the time. You know, seeing is believing is kind, of a, um, is kind of a phrase we have in English. But in the scriptures, hearing is believing. Now, how does this work? God insists, this is why John can say this. John, John can say, okay, so Thomas believes because he saw Jesus. You guys believe because you've heard Jesus. Well, how have you heard Jesus? You've never been in the same room with Jesus. Actually, the Bible insists that you have. The Bible insists that whenever God's word is preached, whenever, whenever you're at home and you, or wherever you're at, and you read God's word, that you're actually hearing his voice. Whenever you talk about God's word with each other, what's coming out of your voice, what's coming out of your mouth is not just your voice. It's actually the voice of Jesus. I, I know that's weird, but the Bible insists that this is true. The Bible is God's word. Paul says to Timothy in uh, um, 2 Timothy, I believe, I can't remember if it's 1st or 2 Timothy. It's 2 Timothy. He says the Bible is God-breathed, and so Timothy preached the word because when you preach the word, it's God breathing out over the congregation. 1 Peter 4 says this, if anybody has the gift of speaking, not just pastors, not just teachers, but if, you're, if you are someone who speaks God's truth to people, if you speak the Bible to people, do it as an oracle of God. Do it understanding that when you speak like an ancient oracle through whom the goddess of the gods spoke, that you are becoming a conduit. Now, I know you feel like you're just you, right? You're just like having a conversation with a friend over coffee about, you know, and you bring up Jesus or God, and you might say something about the, what the Bible says, and you feel like, well, it's just me talking. Actually, 1 Peter 4 insists it's God himself. It's the voice of Jesus himself speaking through you. That's what's happening to us. We've heard the Bible, we've read the Bible, and we've heard Jesus' voice and now we've come to believe. That's just as powerful, if not more powerful. Peter says this in First or Second Peter. He says, Peter says, I saw Jesus on the mountaintop on the transfiguration, but I have a more sure word of truth in the word that God gave the prophets long ago. That's actually just as valuable as even seeing Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. What am I saying? A couple things here. First of all, be in God's word. Like some of you struggle with doubts. Some of you struggle with anxiety. Some of you struggle with depression. Some of you struggle with bitterness. We all struggle with all different kinds of things. Like, and please, like, if you could get into God's word and hear the voice of Jesus, and I know that you might be thinking, again, I, I use this illustration all the time. You might be thinking, I already know what the Bible says. First of all, you really don't. None of us ever do. But second of all, even if you do, you wouldn't ever say to your spouse or your best friend, I already know all their stories. There's no need to talk to them. Now, actually, being in their presence is how you connect with them. Like, be in God's word. Be in God's word. Can I emphasize this strongly enough? You need to be reading God's word every day. I promise you it will go far towards building up your faith and breaking down little doubt barriers that you, that, that, that you raise up in your own heart, which threaten to become unbelief walls. Be in God's word. Okay, here's the second thing. The spirit. Go back to verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to you, said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. That's super key. As the Father has sent me, 
Jesus doesn't say past tense, the Father did send me. That would maybe imply that his mission is now over. The days of my being sent are now done. He doesn't say just the present, the Father is sending me, because for 30 years before that, he's been on this mission. He says he uses the perfect tense, the Father has sent me. It's happened in the past. It has present ramifications. I am still the sent one, and now I am sending you. You are on this mission with me. The Father is sending me, and I am sending you. We're going on this mission together. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. I don't have time to break that down. That probably is an allusion to Genesis chapter 2 when God creates Adam and Eve and breathes the breath of life into them. Jesus is giving them this new resurrection, this new birth power to do what? Receive the Holy Spirit, he says. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, okay, the first way that you meet the resurrected Jesus in a way that creates faith in your heart is through the word. The second way is through the Spirit. Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, specifically, what does that mean here? It means you have the power to forgive sins in Jesus' name. Christians have the power to forgive sins in Jesus' name. Now, the question that always comes up is this. Is, um, isn't God the only one who's allowed to forgive sins? And the answer is, uh, of course, yes. God is the only one who has the power to forgive sins. But it's super clear in Scripture that he has chosen his church to be the instrument by which he does that. Jesus forgives sins. You know how Jesus forgives people's sins? It's not. There's lots of different ways. But here's one of the main ways Jesus forgives people's sins is when you forgive their sins in the name of Jesus. So this is what this text means. Matthew 18 says the same thing. It says to the Christian church, if you forgive anybody's sins, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, they're forgiven. Now, couple bad interpretations. One is, only Jesus can do that, so this is not for us. This is for the apostles. It's a bad interpretation. That's a common, like, Protestant evangelical interpretation. It's not true. This is for us. The apostles are, represent the church. Here's a bad Lutheran interpretation, or Roman Catholic and Lutheran interpretation, interpretation. That's only for the pastors. Only the pastors have the power to forgive sin. So the apostles are not the pastors. The, the apostles are the Christian church. These are the only Jesus followers in the world this time. And God is giving them the power to forgive sins. What does this mean? This means that when you forgive the sins of your friends, when you forgive the sins of your family members, you're not just saying, you know, somebody insults you. Somebody, uh, you know, you're, uh, I don't know, I, I, I have to apologize to my kids all the time for, uh, for being kind of a lunkhead, for being selfish, and for being, I'm just a, I'm a horrible communicator. I, I'm the worst about, like, motivating them with guilt or motivating them, like, by raising my voice. And so I got to go to them and I've got to say, uh, would you forgive me? And they say, uh, they, they always have. They never have not said, yeah, dad, we forgive you. What are they doing? Are they saying, oh, it's okay, let's just forget it and move on. Biblically, that's not what they're saying. Maybe that's what other people mean by forgiveness. That is not what the Bible means and it's not what Christians mean by forgiveness. Here's what they mean. Jesus has breathed on my kids the Holy Spirit and has given them the power to forgive my sins. And when they say, yeah, dad, we forgive you, as agents of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they are, in, they are right in the middle of experiencing the life of Jesus by forgiving my sins. And when they do it, it's Jesus himself. Now, I know I'm looking at Harry. He look, just looks like Harry. But it's actually Jesus that's forgiving my sins. Do you believe that? You need to believe that if you're a Christian. A, it's in the Bible. B, it's your way to connect with Jesus. It's one of the main ways to connect with Jesus. You want to experience what it's like to know and be with the crucified and risen Jesus? 
receive the forgiveness from each other and give forgiveness to each other. That's why it's so important that we not do the whole, like if we're struck, if, there, if there's some sort of, this happens in churches all the time, like there's some sort of like personal issue and so you start off by dividing up. I'm not just gonna talk to them. They can sit on that side of the sanctuary and I'll sit on my own side of the sanctuary. Eventually it's gonna end up and I gotta go to a different church or something like that. Okay, that's a certain sort of peacemaking that's happened, right? But it's incredibly broken. The most broken part is that you had a chance to experience the power of Jesus. You had a chance to experience the presence of the resurrected Jesus and you're like, no, 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 I don't do the forgiveness thing. Like, I've been aggrieved too deeply. If they come and talk to me first, maybe I'll think about it, but not until they're willing to come and tell me that they were wrong. It's not what Jesus does. And he offers you the chance to get on that too. By offering the forgiveness of the Spirit, we offer each other a chance. I'm gonna say it one more time. I know I've said it four times now. We offer each other a chance to be with the resurrected Jesus. He breathes on us and says, I'm on this mission too. The Father's sending me, I'm sending you. Forgive each other, I guarantee you, I am there. In fact, in Matthew 18, that's what he says. In the text where he says, if you forgive anybody's sins, they're forgiven, what he says right after that is, wherever two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'm right there. What he means is, you wanna experience me? Offer each other forgiveness. By the way, can I say this? This is how evangelism is gonna happen. The primary way, not by some sort of like theological download. Let me tell you about all the true things I believe. That's not how evangelism works. Evangelism works, is going to work because the Christian church is the only thing that can actually offer you genuine forgiveness. Everything else, do people forgive each other who aren't believers. That's totally true. But typically speaking, it is a, okay, I'm gonna let this go. I'll agree to let this go and you agree that we're gonna move on and let's try to do better in the future. Christians mean that, but they mean more than that. They mean, when I forgive you and when you forgive me, Christ is right here. The God of the universe is right in the middle of our lives right now. And when, when, if we, as a church, can offer the world forgiveness, it's super powerful. Nobody, understand what, nobody understands what, that, what, what, what that's like. The world only understands permission and unforgivable. These are the two things. There's, there's two, two things that you can do in the world, and that's something that's cool with everybody, yeah, that's fine with me. Or something that's completely unforgivable. And you, you can, you know, there's, I'm not gonna go through a list of our culture's unforgivable sins. But Christianity says, no. Nothing's permissible. Everything is broken by sin. But everything's forgivable. And we are here to offer that free forgiveness to whoever wants it. Okay, word, spirit, last thing, this will be short. The scars. And this, this has both to do with the word and the spirit too. So this is almost not a separate thing, right? When Jesus shows up first to them, what does he do in verse 20? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. First thing Jesus does, he says, peace be to you. And he shows them the wounds that he got from being crucified. When Thomas shows up, what does he do? He says to them, says to him in verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Why does he do this? Why is Jesus so intent that the first thing I'm gonna do post-resurrection is not to say, guys, I'm here, I'm back. What is, why is it that the first thing he's going to do is say, hey, check out these deformities I have? Because it's super important to Jesus for us to get that our God is a wounded God. Our God is a God who carries scars. Our God is a God who is eternally deformed. Revelation 5. The whole church is gathered around the throne and they're worshiping the lamb. And it's not this pretty lamb. It's a lamb that looks like it had been slain from the foundations of the world, John says. 
Our God is a God of scars. In fact, so the first two, Scripture, this is how you meet, this is the main way you're to meet God in Scripture. You are not, let, let me help you out here. You're not to go to Scripture as like, okay, I'm gonna go here and get some good theology so I can know some good stuff. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but it's not the primary thing Scripture's about. Scripture is also not primarily about like meeting the God who is completely sovereign in control. Let me go and learn the rules so I can learn to obey a sovereign God. That's good, but it's not the main thing that's going on in Scripture. The main thing that's going on in Scripture is that Christian is that the world now has a God who has died. The world has a God who's wounded, permanently and eternally deformed for the sins of the world. The most important text in Scripture you can go by the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament, is Isaiah 53, this beautiful text of this servant who came to get beat up and stripped and whipped and crucified and humiliated and abandoned by all his friends. That's who our God is. Our God is the whipped one. Our God is the weak one. Our God is the crucified one. Same thing with the power of the Spirit. Anybody who's ever forgiven anybody else knows the pain and the scars that you will endure if you offer somebody forgiveness. Forgiveness is not saying what you did is okay to me. Forgiveness is saying what you did to me is horrible and broken, but I'm willing to carry the wounds from that and not put them back on you, even though you rightly deserve them. That's what forgiveness is. Anybody who's ever experienced, ever been forgiven or experienced forgiveness knows what it's like to carry scars. You should know. Here's what you need to know. All of, all of you are scarred to some extent. Some of you are badly scarred. And what you need to know is that your God is a God who is scarred right along with you. Your God is not standing far away from you thinking, oh, gee, it's sorry that they're so screwed up. I guess maybe I'll like drop a little grace on them. He actually comes to be just like you. All the brokenness that you have, all the anxieties that you have, all the abuse that you've undergone, whatever that is, for some of you, it's pretty significant. God has experienced that for you. Our God is a God of the scars. And if we can offer that to the world, that our God is not the right God, even though he is. Our God is not the God in control, even though he is. But our God is a God who gets you. The pagan gods are all strong and in control. The God of money is all powerful. The God of sex is all powerful. Thor is all powerful. Zeus is all powerful. Our God is a weak God, and that's what I crave. I don't need some God who's too big for me. I don't need some God who's too good for me. I don't, know, I don't need some God who's too strong to deal with weaklings like me. I need a God who's weak like me and strong enough to carry both of us through it. There's a poem. I've quoted this poem to you before. I'm going to end with this. Edward Shalito was a pastor in Britain during World War I, saw all these soldiers coming back from the front, incredibly scarred, Physically, World War I was the first kind of war where people started to recognize that there's deep, lasting psychological damage from those who go through war. He wrote this poem. I'm going to close with this. It mentions uh, our, it mentions our uh, uh, reading from John 20 in here. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. God. So it's, it's a prayer to God. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. All the gods out there, the big, grand, glorious gods, they don't make any sense of this reality of young men who have lost limbs, young wives and, young, young wives and mothers who have lost sons and husbands. 
people coming home traumatized. Nothing, Nothing that we value in our culture makes sense of our scars but you. Our wounds are hurting us. Where's the bomb? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear, show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Stand with me and let's pray. We'll have communion. Father, we, we praise you this morning for being, for being a God of the scars, for being a God who in all your infinite power like let it all just, just let it all hang and let it all go away and let it all be suspended so that you could come and be weak, so that you could come and be deformed, so that you could come and be eternally scarred for us. It's not the kind of God that we could imagine. It's not the kind of God that we find ourselves falsely worshiping at times, but definitely you are the God that we need. Lord, in your mercy. God, we confess that we valued other gods. We valued other definitions of power. We valued money. We valued career success. We valued good relationships with our family. All these good things that you've given us, we've turned into gods because they seem powerful. They seem like they could fix our problems. We valued independence, self-sovereignty. We valued our liberty, whatever that means. God, we want to value you. We want to repent. We want you to show us your son, Jesus of the scars. We want our God to be the weak God. We want our God to be the crucified God. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we we also want to experience the power of the weak son. We pray that you would keep us in your word. We know from your word that you come to us there that your son Jesus is real and embodied and enfleshed and actually present in your word. We want your spirit. We want to be filled with your spirit. We want the power to know the forgiveness of your son Jesus, both receiving it and forgiving it. Will you do this, Father? We pray in your son's name that you would give us him, that we would have this experience of knowing Jesus through his word and through your spirit. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray that you would be, um, pray that you, the sovereign God, would be with all the requests that we have. And there's so many of them. God, I know that whenever I preach a sermon about our scars and your scars, that I always think about my own brokenness and the things that I've done to myself and the things that have been done to me that have permanently damaged me. I think about my brothers and sisters here, uh, many of whom I know their stories and what they've experienced and the scars that they've damaged. We want to be healed, Father. And so we pray that whatever those scars are, sometimes it's, it's all different kinds of things, that wherever it is that you would meet with us and that you would show us yourself experiencing those same scars right along with us, betrayed, wounded, 
abandoned, we, Dad, we need to know that you are experiencing this with us. Especially, I want to pray uh, specifically this week for the family of Joe Early, who a uh, founding member of our church who passed away this week, that you would give them comfort and, you ho- and hope. And I, and I thank you for Joe's ministry here from the very beginning, and that you would give his wife, Lucille, hope and comfort, and that you would give them uh, the assurance that you're going to raise Joe up on the last day when your son Jesus returns along with all of us. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we can only pray these things by the power of your Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. If you can, uh, say with me the words to the Apostles' Creed found in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. i
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Part in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around and find somebody that you don't know or that you haven't talked to in a while and start to build that relationship. Go in peace.